It's Wednesday, January 29th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Right now, about one in eight couples suffer from infertility, and investors are taking note, pouring tons of cash into the industry. The U.S. fertility market is expected to grow to $15.4 billion by 2023. And there's more to it than just IVF. Startup businesses are also tackling at-home testing, wearables, and egg freezing. Beth Coet, senior editor at Fortune, joins us for the business of baby making. Next, the hot new thing that kids as young as six are asking their parents for are AirPods. Parents are wrestling with how to handle relentless begging from their kids for the wireless earbuds. Are they responsible enough to handle an expensive item like that? There's also the fact that some schools are banning them because it can be used for cheating. Julie Jargon, family and tech columnist at the Wall Street Journal, joins us for more. Finally, Michael Bloomberg has hit double-digit polling in his bid for the Democratic nomination for president, and it is causing concern for some of the other candidates. There are even calls for the DNC to change the rules so he can participate in debates and spar with the others. Chris Catalago, national political reporter for Politico, joins us for what millions of dollars in advertising can do for your campaign. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Treatment should not just be for couples who have a typical infertility diagnosis. You know, I think this sector has the potential to really change how families are formed more broadly. And I think that's what makes it so exciting. And also, I think people are also worried as well. There's risk that comes with that, too. Joining us now is Beth Coet, senior editor at Fortune. Thanks for joining us, Beth. Thanks for having me. We're going to be talking about the big business of baby making There's one in eight couples right now that are struggling to conceive and investors are putting a lot of money into the industry as a whole. And it's from where it started, the fertility industry has grown and there's all sorts of different sectors of it. There's other businesses, there's at-home testing, there's wearables, there's companies delving into insurance and egg freezing is a huge part of this whole thing. Beth, tell us a little bit about the fertility industry. So last year, I started to notice I was getting just a flood of pitches about different companies in the fertility space. And one thing that really struck me is that this had been a sector that had been ignored for a really long time. Women's health in general, we've seen, has not gotten a ton of attention. And all of a sudden, there seemed to be this interest and money flooding into the space. And I think a big part of it is what you said. You know, one in eight couples struggle with infertility. I think people are starting to realize that and seeing that there's a lot of potential here. We talk about infertility. The first thing people think of are people that for some biological reason can't have babies. But the market for this really is beyond that. There's LGBTQ couples that would like to have children. There's people that are single that want to have children also. I think that one was called social infertility. So it's not just people that are biologically can't have kids. Absolutely. And I think that's something really interesting that's happening. We're seeing a large part of the sector really try to change the definition here. And I think that's a good thing. Treatment should not just be for couples who have a typical infertility diagnosis. You know, I think this sector has the potential to really change how families are formed more broadly. And I think that's what makes it so exciting. And also, I think people are also worried as well. There's risk that comes with that, too. So there's definitely both sides of it we're we're seeing happening here. Researchers have said that the U.S. fertility market could be at $15.4 billion by 2023. In 2017, that was about $7 billion, so it's doubling pretty much. 
And uh, I think right now, maybe about 1% of children born in the world are done by IVF, maybe 2% in the United States. So the numbers are still small, but this just, as I mentioned, with the market growing for this type of stuff, we can be seeing more and more births coming out of this. I think that one of the things the market is really trying to solve for is access. So fertility treatment is still very expensive and out of reach for a large segment of the population. This has historically been something that was paid for out of pocket. So again, really sort of segmented for a particular type of consumer um, had existed outside traditional insurance. And I think what we're seeing is that infertility was only sort of designated a disease not that long ago. And I think that has helped sort of bring it into the mainstream, mainstream treatment, mainstream insurance process. Still a long way to go there, but I think that that has the potential to help bring down costs for a lot of people. Let's talk about some of the businesses that have sprung up out of this industry. As I said, there's a a slew of different ones and a lot of startups trying to handle this. But one that's interesting is egg freezing because this has a lot of its own issues with it. You know, a lot of people are freezing their eggs, but then the businesses that are providing the storage and things like that find that they quickly can't keep up with the cost because there's not enough turnaround or there's not enough of a base clientele for this. The egg freezing really started as a way for women who are undergoing cancer treatment to preserve their fertility. Now we've seen it expand beyond that to the broader population. And part of the problem is we just don't have that much data yet on the success rates. A lot of women have not gone back to use their eggs. So we just don't have a really clear sense of what works, what doesn't. But I think a lot of women are finding that it's very freeing in some sense. I heard a lot of that as I was reporting. It made them feel really empowered to feel like they had this option out there. One of the other interesting businesses is wearables. There's a company called Ava that's uh, known as the Fitbit of fertility. Tell us about that one. So I think here we're also seeing sort of different sectors of tech try to address some of the issues in the space. So helping women discover their peak fertility. So when are they ovulating? What's the best time for conception? And I think here it's been fascinating because we've had wearables in the space in healthcare for a really long time, but not really addressing women's health specifically. So I think one of the big themes I found is that the marketplace is just really ripe for this because women's health and fertility in general has been ignored. So some people would argue that we're not really seeing that much innovation in the space, but I think that is because a lot of this stuff just has not existed. And so there is a little bit of catch up going on. Another interesting business that has come up from this is at-home testing. Help explain that one a little bit. And this has more to do with if you would be able to succeed with an IVF program. I'm not sure how that one works. Sure. So there's a couple companies in the space. One that I talk about in the piece is called Modern Fertility. And what they do is they do the same kind of hormone fertility test that you would do during a regular fertility assessment at a doctor's office. They do that at home. And there's been some criticism over the company and, and the test more broadly because it's something actually that should be tracked over time and not taken just once to get the best sense of a woman's ovarian reserve. However, you know, this is the best test that we have at the moment for this. I think, again, going back to the fact that this is not a particularly well-researched or funded space. And so I think their argument would be that this is the best indicator we have, and they're offering it at a lower cost than what you might be able to find at a traditional fertility clinic. Beth Coet, Senior Editor at Fortune, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Let's <laughs> go.
So he was able to scrape together the, the cost difference between the standard and the pro himself from Christmas money that he received, and he traded up the regular kind that his mother agreed to give him and got the pros instead. <laughs> joining us now is Julie Jargon, family and tech columnist for The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Julie. Thank you for having me. I've said it before and I'll say it again. I always love your columns because they're just so interesting to me. The new hot item among kids that they want their parents to buy them, and obviously much to their chagrin, are AirPods. You've seen them everywhere. You see people walking around with them in their ears. And it, and it became its own phenomenon on its own. Like, why are so many people wearing AirPods? They're dumb. And then it just took over and everybody had them. But now kids younger and younger want to get those and schools are banning them. And it causes a whole problem because there's a lot of questions. You know, is my young child mature enough to have something that's so expensive? Will they lose it? Will they just tune me out forever? So, Julia, tell us about what you found out. I have found out that children as young as six are asking their parents, I should say begging their parents oh for gosh. AirPods. This is not just some little new toy. This is kind of the hot item, especially around the holidays. A lot of children were just begging for AirPods and they didn't want anything else. I mean, young kids, 11, 10 years old, not wanting the things that you would think 10 and 11 year olds would want. They wanted AirPods. And you uh, talked about one family where the son, I think he was 11 years old in that case. They're so smart about the things that they want, right? He's like, no, I don't want the regular AirPods because they're hard in my ear. You know, I want the AirPods Pro because they have a silicone tip and you know, they're a lot more comfortable and, <laughs> and noise cancellation. You know, so when it's something that they want, they're so knowledgeable about it. Kids can be pretty sophisticated about tech now. This one child that you referenced, he actually went to the Apple store and was talking to the employees there, and he, he was comparing the regular AirPods to the AirPods Pro, which cost $90 more and have more features like the noise cancellation and the silicon tips that make them apparently more comfortable in the ear. And he decided that those were the ones he wanted, that the other kind weren't so comfortable, maybe would fall out. So he was able to scrape together the, the cost difference between the standard and the pro himself from Christmas money that he received. And he traded up the regular kind that his mother agreed to give him and got the pros instead. <laughs> but, you know, a lot of uh, experts have said that anytime Apple puts out something like wireless headphones, people that love Apple are going to go for it. But people are predicting that more than one third of the U.S. population are going to start using smart ear-worn devices, things that are called hearables. So everybody's going to be into headphones and want more of these things. But as I said at the beginning, there's a lot of concerns that go with this. One chief among them, we're talking about parents and we're talking about families and technology. Is my young child responsible enough to handle this? You profiled another family where a dad gave his son some cheaper alternatives. He lost them right away. And then he lost the charging case of his dad at some store or something like that. So the responsibility factor is a major thing in this. Yeah. I mean, it's not just some inexpensive item that you can lose and go, okay, I'll get another one. I mean, maybe some people can afford multiple pairs of AirPods, but they're pretty expensive. And so for a child to have them, they have to show some responsibility to not lose them, to keep them charged, to remember where they are and take them with them when they want to go places. So that's something that you have to learn as you get older, how to take responsibility for your own items. And this father that you mentioned found that his son isn't ready. And so he's going to have to wait a little longer to get his. The other thing, you know, we're talking about the responsibility and stuff. Schools are banning AirPods also. That's right. One father I spoke to, you know, his son was, I think, 10. So he's in elementary school and the elementary school has banned 
AirPods. And other schools have done the same, uh, not just AirPods, but other hearable devices like them, because they found that kids are being really distracted in class. They're not listening to their teacher because they've got something in their ear, and they're very discreet. So without the wire hanging down, sometimes it's hard, I think, for the teacher to tell a student is wearing them. They can hide them under a hoodie or behind their hair or whatever. So teachers are finding that's another thing that they have to fight in the classroom to get the kids' attention. And then also some kids apparently have been using them to communicate with each other on during tests and communicating the answers. So right. some schools have just said, we're not having any of these wireless earbuds. And you mentioned something briefly about maybe there's a concern that kids might not be paying attention. There's also other concerns that kids starting at a younger age are going to start tuning people out, start tuning the parents out and kind of retreating into these uh, controllable worlds that they can have with their headphones and not really know how to react with the outside world again. It's really easy with any type of headphone to kind of tune out. And I think the smaller it is and the more discreet it is, it's probably harder sometimes for the parent to realize that the reason their child isn't coming to the dinner table is because they've got the AirPods in and and they're not able to hear them. And one expert I talked to said it takes a certain level of maturity to know when it's appropriate to just have some downtime and relax and retreat into your inner space and listen to music or do whatever you're doing. And for younger children, it's how do they know how to delineate that internal time from being part of their environment. And so that's a concern that they'll be right there next to you, but not engaging in any way with what's going on in the household. Julie Jargon, family and tech columnist for The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'd be fine with him being on the debate stage because I think uh, that instead of just putting your money out there, uh, he's actually got to be on the stage and be able to uh, go back and forth so that voters can evaluate him in that way. Joining us now is Chris Catalago, national political reporter at Politico. Thanks for joining us, Chris. Of course. Good to be with you. We're going to be talking about Michael Bloomberg. There was a new morning consult poll that just came out where he hit 12 percent. He has gone beyond Mayor Pete Buttigieg, who figured in at 7%, Andrew Yang at 5 Senator Amy Klobuchar, who just nailed a New York Times endorsement, at 3%. So Mayor Bloomberg is shooting up a little bit in the polls. He's still not the front runner or anything. That's still Joe Biden. But it's setting off some alarms with people on the left in the Democratic Party, so much so that they're trying to see if they can petition the DNC to include him in future debates. Chris, tell us a little bit more about this. Part of it is they feel like he's out there spending coming up now on $300 million on TV and digital ads. He's risen in the polls, as you pointed out. Another poll recently on that same day as the uh, morning consult one that came out had him uh, tied with uh, Elizabeth Warren, with black Democratic voters. Just all these metrics that you look at right now. He's got a staff of over a thousand. It's in all these Super Tuesday states. And basically, like you say, these progressive folks who are aligned mostly with Bernie and with Elizabeth Warren are looking at him and saying, hey, you know, we got to try to stop this before it's too late. A lot of people look at Donald Trump in 2016 and they look at how he was treated by the other Republican candidates and other Republicans on the outside. Obviously, Bloomberg is not in the position that Trump was in the polling, but it's still something that you need to contend with. And so a couple folks who are with an organization have approached the DNC to try to get Bloomberg into 
some future debates. I mean, you know, we have a debate coming up in New Hampshire after the Iowa caucus. We have another debate in South Carolina before the South Carolina primary. So you have opportunities for a broader, what these folks would say is a vetting of Mike Bloomberg. It's one thing for him to put out TV ads. It's one thing for him to go out there and campaign. It's another when he's really being pressed by his opponents. And that's something we haven't seen yet in this campaign. You talk about money and politics. It really goes to show you what millions of dollars in advertising can do. And you do have to get beyond this name recognition thing because maybe a lot of people are just hearing crafted messages, crafted advertising from Mike Bloomberg. But you're right. He hasn't been tested on a debate stage. You know, when Joe Biden was a front runner and stumbled a little bit, there was Democratic donors that were all worried about him at that point. So not to say that Bloomberg would fall in that same category. But what if he hasn't been tested on those fronts? And it just shows you how much that all these millions in advertising really helped boost up that name recognition. One of the biggest kind of underrated aspects of this campaign, especially for candidates that haven't been tested, has been these like CNN town halls that have come up throughout the process where someone's got like an hour to answer something. Oftentimes the next day they were cleaning up an answer that really didn't go well for them. Some of those things continue to dog them throughout the campaign. That's the kind of event, the kind of basically venue that we're not seeing Mike Bloomberg in. So we're seeing him give a lot of speeches that are are written in advance. We're not seeing voters or national anchors on TV asking him questions. And I think that's what folks on the left are asking for. I mean, maybe he gets in there and and there's a scenario in the debate where people look at him and Biden and and maybe they like him more. I mean, there is some upside to doing these debates. It's not all downside. I mean, you do get a lot of pressure, but you also have the potential to take off more than you would. So we also were reporting in the story that the Bloomberg folks are certainly anticipating that even if it's not over these next couple of debates, that eventually they will have to be in these debates. So he's been doing debate prep and they've been sort of trying to figure out which one he could get into. Is it anything before Super Tuesday or is it after Super Tuesday, which is March 3rd? So it's a real discussion. I know it's kind of a process argument that people are making, but when you're out there, like you say, spending hundreds of millions of dollars on your campaign, people have kind of come to expect you to participate in the same process that everyone else is. If there was a rules change by the DNC, there certainly would be some backlash, I would imagine, from guys like Cory Booker, Julian Castro, that didn't meet some of the criteria needed. So I know that would be another issue that they'd have to deal with. Yeah, a lot of the same folks acknowledge that that would be something the DNC would have to really sort of explain to people. They would have to probably get buy-in either from those candidates themselves or their supporters or maybe some real high-profile groups. I mean, it seems like a really tall order, a really tough thing for them to have run this process all these months, excluded Cory Booker, you know, starting after the Atlanta debate and excluded Julian Castro even before that Atlanta debate. Their supporters thought that once they were kind of off the stage. It was sort of the beginning of the end for their campaigns and to allow Mike Bloomberg in by not playing by the rules. Now, you know, there is kind of a counter argument to that, which is that all these candidates who have so far missed the debate cutoff have missed the debate cutoff primarily because they don't have the polling. For Mike Bloomberg, it's kind of the opposite. He does have the polling. He just doesn't have the minimum number of donors because he's not raising money on his own. He's funding it with his own money. So there are some arguments you can make either way. We're also kind of down to crunch time now. He is in double digits. Those two candidates we talked about were never close to double digits throughout this whole process. Chris Catalago, national political reporter at Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Of course. Thank you. 
That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.